0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Sarah Richardson on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Sex Itself, The Search for Male and Female in the Human Genome. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Harvard, jointly appointed in the history of science department and in the Depart- or the program on, on studies of women, gender, and sexuality. And I am an interdisciplinary scholar who is a historian and philosopher of science and also a gender studies scholar who is interested in gender and race in the history of the molecular biosciences, the 20th and 21st century life sciences and also it, broadly in the social dimensions of scientific knowledge.
0: Well, that's a good, yeah, thank you. That's an excellent introduction. I, I, my next question, you know, because I, I told you what it was going to be, and that is, why did you write this book? I should also add that, like, if you wanted to write about something controversial, this is what you would pick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, I, personally, me, I would have stayed away from it, but I just want to, like, you're brave. Why did you write this book? <laughs>
1: Um, I am writing as part of a tradition of feminist analysis of science, and I, I, I have thought of myself as someone who likes to put her finger in a socket. I have also written about race and IQ and other hot-button topics, but I think these are really important topics and spaces where uh, those of us trained in the history and philosophy of science can offer and context to uh, areas of scientific research that uh, circulate into popular culture and have a huge impact on the way that we think about human nature, human difference, and even our daily interactions between the genders. Um, So my interest at the core was in uh, the gender dimensions of scientific knowledge. And in 2005, uh, I came across press coverage of the sequencing of the human X chromosome. And as I read through these materials, I saw the ways in which, uh, uh, not surprisingly, um, our narratives from society about the nature of maleness and femaleness were being used to structure and interpret these new findings. And I thought, gosh, has there been a history of genetic and genomic theories of sex differences? Here we have 100 years of research and this really transformative new understanding of sex rooted in the very vivid binary of the X and Y chromosomes. And um, seeing that we didn't have that and that there was just ample rich material, I began to pursue a history of human sex chromosome research.
0: Sarah, let's begin by getting the science down. Explain to us what a chromosome is and why it is the case that males and females have a different chromosome. I guess that's the right way to put it. And then I also want you to explain, if you can, how we become male and female. Is that too much?
1: Let's give it a shot. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, back to high school biology, Mm -hmm. Um, in humans, uh, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes. The pairs, uh, each one of each pair comes from our mother and our father, um, and the chromosomes are divided into two kinds of chromosomes, the autosomes and the sex chromosomes. We have 22 pairs of autosomes numbered 1 to 22, so known as, for example, chromosomes 13. And, um... Each one of those chromosomes represents a a long strand of DNA tightly coiled um, into a little package, and it has a distinctive structure. And during the process of zygote formation, when you were first conceived, um, one chromosome 13 from your mother and one chromosome 13 from your father paired together, recombined Pairing up structurally and exchanging genetic material Um, and all of your 22 autosomes did this um, to produce the uniqueness that is you. When we sequenced the human genome, beginning around the uh, early 1990s, um, we organized the sequencing of the human genome into chromosome-based consortiums Mm -hmm. because this is how important chromosomes are to the way we organize the genome. Um, We would have teams who were focused just on one chromosome um, and who would be uh, involved over the course of a decade or more in unraveling the very specific structure and DNA sequence of that chromosome. Now, what about the sex chromosomes? This is where there is a structural difference between uh, the male genome and the female genome. A woman will receive an X chromosome from her father and an X chromosome from her mother. So females are double X. But a man will receive an X chromosome from his mother but a Y chromosome from his father. Mm-hmm. So we, we refer to females as XX and males as XY. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the basic picture for humans and all mammals have sex chromosome determining systems, mm-hmm. um, but different numbers and arrangements of chromosomes. So mm-hmm. mice have sex chromosomes, chimpanzees have sex chromosomes, mm-hmm. but different numbers of chromosomes altogether. Mm-hmm. So that's a review of the idea of chromosomes um, and now sex. I guess I should start by saying that uh, doctors and biologists understand sex as a layered concept. So, there are different levels at which we can describe and understand sex and gender. So, yes, there's the chromosomal signature. XX and XY, but there's also the gonadal signature, whether you have ovaries or testes, Uh, there's the hormonal measure, um, your ratio of androgens to estrogen, Um, and your morphology, and some people are even comfortable talking about things like brain sex, and certainly we have constructs like gender identity, sexual identity, sexual orientation, and so on. So um, sex is not a simple concept. Um, and clinically, there are all sorts of disorders of sexual development that reveal this layered nature of sex. So there, uh, in, in disorders of sexual development, we find that there are people who can have a so-called male sex chromosome complement, an XY, but have ovaries instead of testes, mm. right? And we certainly know that uh, there's a proportion of people in the world who may have male morphology, um, but identify as a female.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so these clinical encounters remind us that there is no single essence of sex um, and that, that we actually need to be have a fairly robust and rich repertoire of terms and concepts to understand the nature of human uh, sexual biology and identity.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. Okay, so let's begin with the history then. When was this difference, this chromosomal difference, discovered, and how was it initially interpreted?
1: Great. So just a little over 100 years ago. uh, The X was discovered in 1890, and the first hypothesis that it might be linked to sex Uh, took place around 1900, and the Y chromosome was discovered later in in 1905. And so at that time, the reigning view of how sex was determined was that sex was not actually set at fertilization. In fact, a variety of environmental factors um, could play a role in conditioning Sexual development during the fetal stage. Uh, and these and this mechanism was thought of uh, as metabolism. Mm-hmm. So you would lay down the pathways of metabolic speed and robustness in response to environmental factors during development. Um, and that would push uh in the direction of maleness or femaleness. And in this understanding, maleness and femaleness were understood as really quite labile, as a spectrum, as something that could kind of fall along a range of phenotypes. And that's interesting because we tend to think about that late 19th century era era as a very period of strong sexual binaries mm-hmm. but in fact in the science of sex it was hermaphrodites and intersex animals and um, the complexities and vagaries of embryonic development that drove theories of sex difference so in the face of this the discovery of this very striking binary um, at the level of the chromosomes was um, hard to absorb Um, And it took several decades for researchers to kind of get their heads around it and to move away from metabolic theories of sex to finally understand the X and Y as the so-called sex chromosomes.
0: What impacted, how did um, sort of, I guess, political and cultural factors affect the understanding of this? Did people simply say, okay, well, here we have it now. This is the essence of sex?
1: Right. Right because it it did take several decades for the sex chromosomes to come into their own and to begin to circulate into um, popular culture Um, and so as a historian and philosopher of science I find putatively boring things like terminology in science extremely interesting as an artifact to follow um, core debates about how we should know the world and so in the book, I follow debates among geneticists about what to call the X and Y chromosomes, and some of the terms. The original term was the odd chromosomes, which I love for its resonance with the odd couple. Right? It kind of well, these are these are odd. They're they're a little outside of what we would expect. Um, There, The other common terms were the accessory chromosomes and the idiochromosomes. And sex chromosomes were kind of off on the side. No one wanted to use sex chromosome because they didn't want to think of the X and Y as the essence of sex. And they were really um, reserved about attributing a trait or a human character to a single chromosome. Um, And they thought that would distort reasoning and was... Uh, uh, re- was reifying a single most visible factor um, associated with sex as the locus uh, of sex itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in these debates, uh, which were really quite vituperous, um, we can see the struggles um, over sex chromosomes um, as a, a struggle over coming to terms with this notion of a sex binary vividly embodied in uh, or at the homunculus of the X and Y chromosome. But over time, in response to developments in the science of sex, as well as um, developing um, social and political controversies and debates around the nature of maleness and femaleness, um, we do, the, the um, sex neutral alternative term, terms are pushed aside and the shorthand of the sex chromosome kind of wins the day. And as that happens, we see the X and Y begin to enter uh, political discourse about the nature of maleness and femaleness, uh, questions about female or male inferiority or superiority intellectually and otherwise, um, ways of explaining um, uh, the prospects for uh, feminist struggles to change the sexual order. Um, And so that is the moment with with the arrival um, at the term sex chromosome, the kind of sexing of these objects of biological knowledge and investigation, um, that the translation translatability of these concepts um, for popular consumption uh, becomes especially uh, powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. Well I wanted to go on actually chronologically and also scientifically because one of the things that was discovered sex-linked traits. Yes. Uh, so how, how are these interpreted? How are they discovered and interpreted?
1: Right. So it turns out that the sex chromosomes were very central to many of the key developments of 20th century genetics. They're very much carved into the core conceptual backbone of classical and molecular genetics. So um, some of your listeners might be familiar with the uh, American geneticist Tom and H- Thomas Hunt Morgan, who famously at Columbia University in his fly labs uh, discovered uh, the, the phenomenon of sex linkage of traits. That is, he discovered... Uh, traits that uh, appeared in males but did not appear in their uh, female or, uh I guess they're they're mothers. Let me give an example folks might be familiar with is hemophilia, Mm -hmm. right, in royal families. Skips a generation, appears only in males. Um, And the only reason, the only mechanism that could explain that is X linkage. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's carried on the X chromosome and uniquely exposed only in males because there isn't a second X chromosome to compensate for the genetic Mm -hmm. error. Mm Um, and sex, what sex linkage did intellectually? We're talking about the 1910s and 1920s here. Is is it was the first mechanism that allowed the location of specific traits to specific chromosomes, thereby affirming the theory of chromosomal uh, in, uh, inheritance. So the idea that, yes, the chromosomes are the locus of the genetic information and that there are specific and discrete traits that are located on each chromosome reliably in particular locations. And then if you could look at sex-linked traits, you could look at traits linked to sex and begin to understand something about the nature of inheritance as mediated by the chromosomes.
0: Let's talk about another discovery. I guess it was a discovery. Uh, that is hormones, hormones. Uh, uh, sex, sex hormones i don't know exactly what they were called the terminology is important uh, how did those play into the debate
1: yes so as i just mentioned the it's interesting because the x and y chromosomes were were not primarily discovered in the context of a race to understand the biology of sex rather they were discovered in by cytogeneticists who were studying the nature of heredity and chromosomes and cell biology they were looking at insects and all of that (laughs) meanwhile in another context entirely um The science of sex was really exploding at the turn of the 20th century. There was a new interest in agricultural control of uh, sex and breeding. There was interest in birth control. um, And there were new uh, chemical uh, techniques that allowed the isolation uh, and synthesis of a new thing called internal secretions and um as this heady moment of interest in sex and its changeability the preservation of masculinity in the face of the rise of feminism, and so on and so forth came to a head, sex hormones um, entered pharmaceutical science, um, became hot topics of social investment, government research investment, in the case of an interest in birth control and agricultural breeding. And so there's this whole other arena where this parallel construct to the sex chromosome, the notion of the sex hormone, was taking shape. Mm -hmm. and this uh, was a kind of magnetic field that began to draw research on the genetics of sex into uh, the mainstream of sexual science Mm -hmm. Um, and it is. It was a moment where some critical conceptual distinctions were introduced for the science of sex, and the one distinction that I discuss um, as being central here was the distinction between sexual determination and sex differentiation. Intellectually, the problem of sex prior to the 1920s or so was understood as encompassing everything from uh, sexually transmitted diseases to um, the problems of women's liberation and um, gynecological problems and sex determination so whole lumping together <laughs> of the problem of sex um, but but with the rise of sex hormones a sophisticated scientific vocabulary came into place that distinguished how sex is initially determined how the switches flipped so to say um, from later sexual differentiation and development mm-hmm. and it was a kind of division of labor the sex chromosomes flip the switch and the sex hormones would be the developmental and life course mediators of secondary sexual traits.
0: Isn't that sort of what we think today?
1: You know, it is, the, it, is it, it should have been what you learned in high school biology, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, um, Maybe I, didn't, we, but I
0: don't remember. <laughs>
1: uh, absolutely, right? So, this idea that, um, and, and this sustained for much of the 20th century, that the sex hormones are where it's at. For the science of sex,
2: yeah, yeah, um,
1: and and the genes, you know, play a very limited role, um, but the hormones are the primary, or um, the are the chemistry of sex.
0: Yeah, and sex. they're also they're also that therapeutic tool for people um, who are transitioning. Absolutely, and, and I know some of these people, so that's why hormones are me like, well, that that really what does it, you know? I mean, right. Clearly, that's what does it. So. Um, all right, let's let's talk a little bit about something I, I always am a little bit confused by this, and th- th- this is people with the extra chromosome, and it's XYY for and then XXY, and this was discovered in the fifties, is that right? These sort of yes, right, but and that a lot was made of that,
1: right? So yeah. now we're entering into a new era. So there was the hormone dominated era, and then in the nineteen fifties, a couple of things happened. First of all, we got some new techniques in the science. We uh, Human chromosomes are pretty skittish and difficult to study and so it's hard to get the right sample material, um, but there was a new uh, technique called the buccal uh, smear um, that allowed the visualization of human chromosomes um, with high degree of precision and the processing of large amounts of human samples uh, using just things like cheek swabs. Um, and With this new technique, scientists were able to determine for the first time the actual number of human chromosomes. So we're really talking about a baby science until the Mm -hmm. 1950s with respect to human uh, genetics. Uh, So previously it was thought that humans had 48 chromosomes and the question of whether humans even had a Y chromosome was a matter of dispute, but in the 1950s it was confirmed that indeed humans had 46 chromosomes and do have a Y chromosome in males Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, so a breakthrough moment there but in the process of doing um, I I, I said there were two things that happened the second thing is we had the kind of post nuclear era where um, atomic radiation was a huge concern and Massive amounts of funding went into studies to ascertain the mutability of the human genome. And this was a boon for chromosome science. It supported population-based studies of the normal and atypical human genome. And in this uh, work, uh, scientists were able to collect huge samples of human karyotypes. That would be um, the total uh, picture of a of Chromosomes in an um, individual—that those 22 autosomes plus the two sex chromosomes Mm -hmm. that I Um, mentioned—and in this process, they discovered certain chromosome anomalies. Um, But one of the most famous ones would be Down syndrome, right? Chromosome trisomy 21. The uh, discovery that this uh, disease, uh, long known as mongrelism, um, that occurred in every population in every culture. Um, was in fact uh, caused by a duplication of chromosome 21 so that the individual had in fact an extra chromosome Um, and Oh, this discovery led to great hope that many congenital and previously understood disorders would be illuminated by these new studies. One of the other exciting sets of findings that came out of these surveys is that there were a population, a certain population number of people in in any um, population, that is, who had extra sex chromosomes. There were XXX individuals, there were XXY individuals, and as you mentioned, XYY individuals. And so then this became a a really hot area for investigation, for understanding the spectrum of sex and the role of genetics in it. Mm And one of my favorite examples is the case of the so-called xyy mm-hmm. super male
0: mm-hmm. now that one is uh, still that one is still around
1: well it is It um again going back to high school biology um i speak with many people who learn this as a as a kind of um easy to remember example in their high school biology textbooks um although um the idea that having an extra Y chromosome is a, is a medical problem or a syndrome um, is, has now been thoroughly debunked. During the 1960s and 1970s, it was asserted that men with an extra Y chromosome had had a, the so-called super male syndrome, that with an extra Y chromosome, they were more aggressive. They were taller. They were stronger. They were like, more likely to commit crimes. In essence, they were more male. They had an extra dose so to say, of maleness. Mm -hmm. And um, this episode is now understood today to be a classic case of bias in genetic science, but also to be a classic case of the excesses of behavioral genetics, where a rush to judgment led to Stigmatization of a certain population of individuals. Right. Uh, in time, the hypothesis was disproved. It turns out that individuals with an extra Y chromosome are not more aggressive and not more likely to commit crimes, um, although they are more likely to be a bit taller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, (laughs) But what's interesting about this was what it tells us about how we use the resources of gender to understand our objects of scientific investigation. It was just assumed that the Y uh, must be the carrier of the traits of maleness. And at the time, aggression was very central to the understanding of masculinity. and the idea was that a very kind of crude idea but it carried it went so far so interesting um, that the why was this extra dose of maleness or dose of aggression Um, and so I look at how that resonated with the gen- gender politics of the time and how that reflects a particular way of investing the sex chromosomes with our ideas about masculinity and maleness and how that indeed played a cognitive role in this uh, the construction of the hypothesis of the so-called super-male.
0: Yeah. i, g- I got to be honest here. I think if you would have... Uh... Somebody on the street would have asked me if somebody with the XYY signature was likely to be more aggressive. I'm pretty sure I would have said yes. <laughs> I think I think I would have said that. But anyway, also, you know, I mean it's 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 definitely not gone because I'm a big fan of the Alien franchise, you know, Aliens and that business, yes. right? And that in the I'm actually just googled it while you were talking and Alien 3, made in yes. 1992, has this in it
1: the double Y chroma. Right,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, right.
1: Who are extra dangerous. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very much alive and there was a television series yeah. uh, called XYY Man oh, and um, it's just a great example of the circulation yeah. of ideas. Well, like I said, uh,
0: you know, I'm pretty well educated, but I got to tell you, I think I would have said, yeah, it's a, I think I read an article in Scientific American about that. Uh.
1: Sure, sure. So, <laughs> and, and as one of the original researchers who, I mean, really, it's a about our conception of maleness, not our conception of of double Y. But it's about our conception of the Y itself. So we should expect uh, people with a single Y, i.e., your typical male, to be a little aggressive, right? right? So it says something about our view of male
0: nature. Uh It certainly does. So um, let's move on a little bit. And uh, of course, the holy grail for genetic science is the gene that produces this, just that. Of course, it doesn't work like that. But that's what they were all looking for, and they discovered this. It's called the SRY gene. Is that right? Is that, yes. Right? Yeah. The SRY gene. Tell us about that.
1: Well, um, another thing that came out of the, this work in the 1950s was confirmation that the that there must be a switch for male sex determination on the Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, you could show that in uh, individuals that were double X. So had the female karyotype, but also had a Y chromosome. Um, that they would have male gonads and develop as a typical uh, male uh, morph. Mm -hmm. So um, what that meant is that it was the presence or absence of the Y chromosome that in most cases determined maleness. And so in the 1980s, when we had now some molecular techniques to start looking for genes, um, scientists began a search for what they hoped would be the so-called master gene of sex determination by scouring the Y chromosome uh, for such genes and doing the famous knockout experiments in mice where you, um, you knock out one gene at a time and see what it does to sexual phenotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this process, they, they did discover a very significant locus in male testes determination known as the SRY. Um, but what I show is what I, the story I tell is how that story, that uh, finding crumbled um, during the 1990s. Um, it crumbled I argue, not just because the SRY gene did not fit the model of a master molecule, i.e. it didn't activate anything. It turned out it had a parallel, uh, a very similar gene also on the X chromosome. Right. So there were scientific findings. But it also crumbled because a very different model and picture of sex determination was intellectually reshaping the field. And that picture of sex determination said, actually, the problem of sex determination is not identical to the problem of male testes determination. Mm -hmm. The problem of sex determination is one of pathways toward both ovarian and testicular sex determination. Um, And we should expect there to be multiple pathways many genes not only located on the sex chromosomes involved, many opportunities for sex reversal. Um, and uh, many factors, both pro male and uh, pro female, anti male and anti female, guiding this process. There should be redundancy. Um, there should be. Um, we we should be able to explain at the end of it the full differentiation of the ovary and the testes. Now, where did that idea come from? Um, I argue that it reflects shifts in broader thinking about sex and gender. In the 1990s so you know my hypothesis in the book is our cultural thinking about sex and gender at any given time is playing a role in structuring the science and in the 90s we were rethinking sex and gender in the Western world mm-hmm. um, and by we I mean not just scientists but also patient activists intersex individuals uh, feminist uh, scientists and feminist science critics Um, and gender theorists and others Um, and as we rethought that the scientific model expanded and changed and I tell that story of the kind of shift away from the master molecule model of sex determination as testes determination to a very different much complexified uh, model of uh, sex determination that includes ovarian and testicular pathways.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everything is more complicated than it appears in the press I think that's what <laughs> um, yeah it reminds me once I was supposed to write a trade book and um, I said so I was going to write this trade book I won't tell you what it was about And uh, I, I wrote the trade book and I sent it to the publisher and uh, they said well, it was too, it's too complicated and I said well you know things are as complicated as they are <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do <laughs> um, yeah that book was never published, by the way. The-
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but I'm, I'm one of the arguments I'm trying to make in this book is that complexity can be just as interesting as simplicity, sure, no, um, right. and yeah. and you know, complexity doesn't need to be endlessly complex. We can talk about it. Yeah. We can understand its bounds. We can show the pathways, um, but. It's, it, can, it, it, it can be okay to push things sure. <laughs> a, a little bit. And I try, I try to guide the reader um, through this story. One of the things I use in the book is, um, is illustrations yeah. and visuals, both from the original science in this particular chapter, we go from a 1980s model that is literally just an, a linear arrow going in one direction with mm-hmm. a single factor um, causing sex determination yes. to a, a recent model from I think 2011, which with curly cues and arrows going yeah. in multiple directions. Um, but I also was able to work with a, a wonderful illustrator from Seattle to um, help illuminate um, in a, I hope a fun and engaging way some uh, of the scientific it concepts. It certainly
0: does. Um, The the next topic I want to discuss, which is the next topic in the book, uh, hits kind of close to home because uh, I was actually at the Atlantic Monthly in 2002 when I read the report on Eureka Alert about the Y chromosome and its troubles. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I remember being very excited by the story. I'm like, "This our readers have to know about this." So, um, can you? And then finally, in in 2010, a little bit late to the game, they they did put uh, an article in the magazine on the cover. In fact, about it, you have some critical things to say about the science here and the way it was reported. So, I definitely want to hear this.
1: So the 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 theory that the Y chromosome is degenerating, um, is uh, just ripe for a gender analysis. Oh, yeah. Um, It's not just the theory itself, but the the interest in the theory at this particular moment.
0: Right. Well, and I, I should say, you know, have somebody who say this, it's absurd. I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, well I mean, let's you know, back up. Well, yeah, so okay, go ahead.
1: I It, it doesn't... It, <laughs> You're right. Because the urgent public discourse about it doesn't make any sense because we're talking about will it will it disappear in ten million years or a hundred million years or you know? Um, so so it's really much more about our anxieties. I think yeah. I argue around masculinity in a post feminist age. Um, but let me say that it's let's talk. Go back to the science. Um, One thing that genome science has been able to show us is that the X and Y used to be an autosomal pair. That is, as I explained earlier, an identical pair of chromosomes about 300 million years ago. We're talking in mammals, mm-hmm. and over time, as the uh, chromosome we now know as Y uh, got a the SRY gene attached to it, which is one gene in a pathway of sex determining genes. Um, the Y chromosome stopped recombining with the X chromosome; it stopped mm-hmm. doing that exchange I talked about, which is essential to chromosomal repair um, at, in and and. Over time, it therefore lost, lost away genes.
0: I should, say, um, I should say, if I could just interrupt for a second, the fact that it stopped recombining, though, was very important for the uh, science that I was talking earlier about.
1: Yes, <laughs> that yes, because <laughs> the Perfect. reason it stopped recombining is that it began to be passed clonally right. from male to male. That's just what we um, about. And this now liberation. allows us yeah. to trace patrilineal ancestry <laughs> in ways that have been really interesting. Thank God
0: um, for that. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted.
1: <laughs> yes, so so Y chromosome ancestry testing is now a hot yeah. business. Uh-huh. Um, but but going back to this this story of evolution, it now today in humans the Y chromosome is about a twentieth of the size of uh or of the uh, X chromosome has, a, depending on who you talk to, somewhere between 50 and 75 genes compared to the X chromosomes, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 genes. Um, so it's simply a fact, and it's a fact in all systems of sex determination in the natural world that use sex chromosomes, that the clonally inherited sex chromosome um, is, loses content. Over time, and in fact, in some mammalian species, uh, some species of voles, for example, the Y chromosome has been entirely lost. Mm -hmm. So it's true that the Y chromosome, despite the unfortunate term degeneration, (laughs) um, has has over time lost gene content. That's part of its history. Um, Now, so so the question is. Will it entirely disappear as it has in voles and how soon will that happen? Well, you could see that as a highly political question. You could also see it as a very fascinating question in genome science, right? Just a theoretical question, right? Um, and, And so I look at debates over whether it is degenerating or perhaps in a holding pattern, or even, as one scientist claims, regenerating. Um, And I look at how the scientists themselves have harnessed certain gendered scripts or narratives um, to... Pull together their own theories and ideas um, and I look at how they present their ideas to the public within a discourse charged by I masculine uh, anxieties uh, in the face of post-feminist changes so loss of ma- perceived loss of male power in the face of female advancements in society um, and I really so the interesting thing to me is how this very particular gender politics of our current moment can once again be seen revealed within the debates in the science. And I, I believe we can do this without dismissing, dismissing the science as merely political because my view of science is um, as, a, as a very theory-laden practice in which we're dealing with uh, a set of empirical facts that need to be interpreted um, with respect to a broader uh, hypothesis that is not fully determined by the evidence. And so we have to bring some assumptions to the table. And your view um, of maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity may be part of how you knit together and argue for your hypothesis. And I think that's the case in these debates over whether the Y chromosome is degenerating.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how did... how uh, Again, let's go back to the science a little bit. So we know that it is getting smaller, or we think that it's getting smaller. Uh, it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, it obviously hasn't lost its... Whatever function it has, we're not quite sure what that is, if the SRY gene is part of this sex-determining gene that, m- that maps these pathways. Mm-hmm. So that's all pretty sound. Uh, how is it... Uh, I, I, guess, I guess I have two questions. When were people in the scientific establishment responsible for the way in which it was often portrayed in the uh, what we might call publicistic literature? Yes,
1: yes. yes. Go ahead and so, talk about that. So I think so, and I think the right way to understand this um, is not to so. It, I, so too often, our way of thinking about science and politics is to look at any occasion in which politics seems to be in the science as a case of gender bias, um, as a case of abuse of science or the infection of science by something that shouldn't be there. Um, instead, I think that scientists, entrepreneurs in the area of genomics um, are receptive to um, and use indeed popular narratives about gender to promote and frame their work, mm-hmm. and they do this in ways that subtly inform um, their own theories within the science itself, and. This itself should not be seen necessarily um, as an infection of science by politics, but as a way in which values and perspectives from um, our lives are brought into the practice of science. What is interesting about this very charged debate is that um, there is the popular receptive context, but there's definitely a way in which the, I profile in particular two two, uh, scientists who've been prominent advocates of alternate views on the question of why chromosome degeneration, but the way in which um, these scientists actively identify as feminist or anti-feminist and the role that that plays in I think, cognitively pulling together, collecting together their ideas under a structure that can be assimilated and understood by others.
0: I don't know if this is a correct characterization of what you just said, but as somebody who was actually there on the scene in the press when this story hit and looking for something that we could put in the magazine, I wanted a scientist to gin it up for me. I wanted Mm -hmm. a scientist to say, yes, the Y chromosome is degenerating, and this is related to... uh, the uh, you know decline of, of, of male status in the workplace. <laughs>
1: uh, Marshall, thank you. Uh, yeah, That's I what mean, I wanted. You know, I didn't want anything You less. know, it took me a while to make that connection. Yeah. I wish I had spoken to you earlier you in the process, get it up, man. Everybody but to I, I get think it up. so. This is what we mean by the receptive context right. of science. Right. Um, you know, there's certainly, and this is true through. Throughout the sexual sciences, in, in hormone science, in genetic science, I think, uh, and and when I speak with sex chromosome geneticists, they do they they are frustrated that sometimes it's difficult for them to explain their ideas to a broad audience. Um, in a way that doesn't reinforce uh, common understandings of the sexual binary. And that is part of the story here. It is absolutely part of the story here. Um, but then we have to understand it, I think, take one more step, and understand the receptive context as conditioning in conscious and unconscious ways, the way that scientists decide to pursue certain questions or not. Mm -hmm. We're in an environment where it's hard to get scientific funding. Mm -hmm. I referred a moment ago to the scientist entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's a huge amount of pressure to uh, maintain the status of one's research program and to stand out in an incredibly crowded uh, and and a field of, of discourse. And, um, finding that hook that is somehow gets outside of the bubble of science and translates in this powerful way um, is something that successful scientists in this current research environment um, consistently do Mm -hmm. and so it is part of the cognitive structure of science today Mm -hmm. the receptive context doubles back and becomes subtly a structuring and influencing factor in the questions that are pursued and asked, the language that is used, um, and whether, you know, a scientist decides to push really hard in an area and look for uh, particular kinds of answers or not. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Yes, I I guess I was at one time part of that mechanism. I can can say that. Uh, (laughs) So... Let me go on to the next episode in the book, and it's another fascinating one. It's not one I'd heard about because I sort of stopped reading the coverage of these things a few years mm-hmm. ago. And uh, most of our listeners will know that uh, very little, genetically speaking, separates us from chimpanzees. Right. right? Uh, now, somebody claimed in a scientific paper that more separated men and women than separates humans from chimpanzees, genetically speaking. Is that Right.
1: Well um, yeah so as as the sequence of the X and Y chromosome came out now we're talking about the genomic age right. of of mm-hmm. of sex chromosome research uh roughly the last decade or so um, where we're beginning to be able to look even beyond the sex chromosomes to whole genome comparisons between males and females. Um, and while we know that the sequence difference is going to be very small, it would reside in that extra Y chromosome that males have um, that has a very small number of genes, mostly involved. In, uh testes determination and spermatogenesis for sperm creation, so very male-specific processes. So uh, we know that the sequence difference is not going to be much, Um, but where the differences can be quantified today using whole genome technologies is at the level of gene expression. So the sequence might not vary, but a gene that males and females share might express at different levels, that is create gene product at different levels in males and females, right? Say in the liver, in the brain, in the heart. Um, And these kinds of whole genome studies of gene expression are prompting a way of thinking about sex, genomic sex, as I call it, genomic thinking about sex um that is very similar to the way we have learned to think about species comparisons so uh we we know that humans and chimpanzees are very closely related uh, because of uh, genome technologies uh we've all heard the jokes that humans are seventy five percent banana, right? <laughs> so these kinds of... Um, Personally,
0: species- I'm 85% banana. Would- so <laughs> um-
1: so, you know, it's, these are fun. They're, they're facts that, you know, appear on bumper stickers and t-shirts. They have this high translation ability. Um, but we also, um, they, they've been among the most exciting findings of the genomic age, uh, because now we have molecular evidence to support our previous phylogenetic um, presumptions.
2: Right, yeah, right.
1: Yeah, and um, what's interesting to me, though, is of course, uh, sexes are, are not like species. Um, they, they mate with each other, and exchange genetic material. So as a philosopher, I'm interested in how biologists conceptualize sex, and I'm interested in this discourse in which there's a recourse to ideas of phylogeny or species difference to think about sex, because we just don't have a sophisticated vocabulary and critical discourse around the notion of sex in biology, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I take this claim that males and females are as different or more different than humans and chimpanzees, and I run with it. I, I look at it uh, empirically, and I think that the claim is outlandish empirically. If you really get into the data available, uh, the claim uh, really over-represents uh, differences between males and females at but the it, level of the genome.
0: But it's going to get in the Atlantic Monthly.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) much I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Highly quotable claim, right? Um, You're right about that. Um, But but I also look at it conceptually. You know, what is it that, you know, it's just like the discourse of males and females as being from Mars and Venus. um, And I really, I think it should concern us um, that in the opening gestures of the genomic age, there's a kind of carving of this old binary view of maleness and femaleness that has not served us well throughout the 20th century sciences of sex into the databases and the research models of the genomic age. And what I urge in the concluding chapters um, is that we have an open and critical conversation about how our, how we want to think about sex differences and conceptualize them at the genomic level. Level, that actually it's not determined by the data or the quantitative methods and technologies that are currently available to us. Um, it's actually a conceptual and even an ethical question mm-hmm. that we can have a debate about at this very moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think one of the things that happens is these, I, I guess you might call them, I, I, don't, I don't know if this is the correct way to characterize them, but like neutral scientific facts. Uh, people don't really find them very interesting, and so they make them interesting by relating them to other things, things th- that that are are interesting to them, and they often do so in an erroneous way. Uh, it, it, and so, in that way, they the, the, the fact serves as a kind of false premise for a later argument, um, to, to right. which the fact does not relate really. Uh, and and once it kind of gets into currency, then the, the underlying fact is kind of gone. It just becomes right. an argument about something of pertinence to people. So, I mean, I've seen that in my own life. Um, let me ask, I have two further questions for you before I let you go. One is, and in the final chapter of the book, uh, I don't know if this is a correct characterization, but you uh, the way I think of it is this. If I were talking to somebody about the determination of sex and sexual differences on the genomic level, what should I say as a right-thinking person? Oh. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, no. what, what, is, what should I say?
1: right, right um, so so i I do want to just back up a moment and say um, that that I really do not think that that there is one right thinking way. Uh, to think about the genetics of sex differences other than to approach it with an incredibly critical and open-minded perspective.
0: Yeah, well, I don't believe uh, anybody about anything, to be honest with you, so that's <laughs> <a> given. <laughs>
1: exactly. So, so, so I would say um, that humans have been searching for the biological basis of sex differences for hundreds of years. And over time, as we have new technologies and methods and materialities for understanding the human body and biology and natural history, we have rearticulated those differences in various ways. And what's happening now in the genomic age is that we are rearticulating all of our previous understandings and theories of sex differences in the quantitative Uh, technologies of genomics. And so the interesting thing is um, how we will test and carry forward and um, revise and subtly shift those received ideas as we enter the genomic age. Um, And I do think, though, uh, so I do think that another wise thing to say is that we should not look to science to answer in some sort of neutral, um, outside of society and human values way, the nature of sex differences. But actually, that conversation is a humanistic conversation. Sure. Sure. Um, so those would be the two things I would say. That said, I would say that the genome suggests at the moment um, that, uh, that sex is complex. Um, that there are many pathways to uh, typical maleness and femaleness, that sex is certainly spectrum-like, um, and uh, that sex is mediated at, by genes over the life course in response to all sorts of factors including reproductive status, uh, weight, nutrition, age, um, and envir- other environmental factors, and that as we enter an era where we move beyond just sequence to the interaction of the environment with the genome, um, we will again be recasting our understanding of sex differences.
0: Mm -hmm. I I mean, I find all that quite convincing, especially the humility. Uh, One of the things I like to point out with people, people will sometimes say, well, um, science has progressed as far as it can. We know everything we can know. And I'm like, not Uh, because if you just look at what's been discovered in the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, our pictures of almost everything are different than they were. So just on the historical evidence, the things we're saying now are going to seem obsolete in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So we really have to remember that. We just don't know. What we don't know is a lot more than what we know. Um, and and that's just about everything. So I, I like that part of it. Um, and and I I mean I agree I agree I agree with it completely. Also, I like the idea of of sex as a kind of spectrum um, a, a phenomenon because it is. <laughs> I mean, it just is. Uh, it, you can just look around you and see mm-hmm. that it is. Uh, there are just lots of different sexualities. They cluster, you know. But a lot of things cluster, um, mm-hmm. and we don't impose any sort of you know binary on on these things that cluster. It's convenient to do so, but. We should always recognize it's just convenient. That's all it is. It's not an apt description of the phenomenon itself. Um, And and I like that very much as well. So here's the last question. I don't think you're going to like it very much. Um, I'm going to push it just a little bit. So I have a beautiful daughter. And she is now four years old. She's about turned five. And she was raised by people, me and my wife, who uh, did not want in any way to suggest to her any gender stereotypes, I'm not saying we succeeded in this, but uh, she really loves pink and shiny, and she will only wear dresses, and she insists on dressing up before she goes out, and lots of things that which we think of as typical girly behavior. Um, and, and again, this is in the context that we did, like we didn't suggest any of this stuff to her. How am I going to explain that? Mm.
1: Well, I'm going to have Sorry to. About that. I am, you know, it's the people who work on the brain and on child development who have the most exciting things to say about this. And I will refer you uh, to um, Anne Foster Sterling's work um, on developmental dynamic systems theory and gender, um, and the, a, a really wonderful book that came out. Uh, two years ago um, called Brainstorm by Rebecca Jordan Young. Uh-huh. And that is about uh, a kind of a related inquiry to mine um, about neuroendocrinological theories of gender development. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, this is not my area of no, research. No, I know it's
0: not. I just, I,
1: but <laughs> y- y- these are the kinds of questions because they're people's experiences of gender as being, you know, very hard to deviate from a certain path Um, and you know I so I I myself cannot answer why your daughter loves shiny things Um, although the forces for gender conformity among peer groups um, even at a very early age have been shown to be strong um but the fact that there are large numbers of people who conform to our um gender expectations um should not lead us to assume that these performances are necessarily fixed and i will just say something about my next project which is about the my science... next question oh Go ahead. okay yeah. well it's about the science of maternal uh, effects um and i will say that um I discovered around the turn of the 20th century uh, when the U.S. W- uh, decided to start collecting vital statistics on births, um, they decided that there would be two colors of cards for de- collecting these statistics, one, one for males and one for females. And this uh, comes from the Archives for the Children's Health uh, Bureau in Washington, D.C. And what color would the boy's card be?
0: Blue. Yeah, it be blue
1: pink ah! <laughs> and blue for the, for the girls. So that itself has changed in a hundred years.
0: I think, the Brit- I think the British painted, if I recall correctly, this might just be a ridiculous factoid. I think they painted a battleship pink. Right. You might want to look that up. <laughs> you really might want to look that up. Because it's a yes. uh, vague recollection of them painting a battleship pink, like right. in World War I. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Well, yes, and and so and so I think um, you know the the pink thing um, has you know there are very different intuitions about pinkness cross yeah. culturally and across time, um, and I think that indicates uh, something that we haven't talked about much in this interview, but about gender, yes. changing conceptions of gender um, as and and this to me is just absolutely fascinating, and uh, the ways in which they again. Um, these social constructs structure the way we think Mm -hmm. about the world the way Mm -hmm. we order things our very ontology and our interactions with people Mm -hmm. with others
0: well that sounds like a really cool project and i hope you come on again when you're done you're going to be done in about what six months
1: all right yeah just turn them out here yeah
0: Yeah. Yeah. you marry that book and you're gonna be married to it for about 10 years (laughs) you're gonna divorce it so anyway i i want to say thank you to everybody who listened to this podcast it's been it's been really entertaining for me i have to say that entertaining and enlightening we've been talking to sarah richardson about her book sex itself the search for male and female in the human genome so thank you for being on the show sarah Thank you. And I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everybody who listened to this podcast. Take care.